Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. It's mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 153 of the Observer's Notebook podcast. This is an encore presentation of an earlier broadcast YouTube presentation with Ken Pichetli and Beth Westfall talking about the history of the Alpo and the 75 years of the journal. So this is an audio version. The video version is over on YouTube if you'd rather do that. The Association for Lunar Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar Planetary Observers, also known as The Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon by giving as little as a, a dollar a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5, receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can find out more at www.patreon.com slash observersnotebook. If you'd like to join the Alpo, membership begins at $18 a year. For more information, find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And we're also on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search, search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of the Observer's Notebook. And now, the Encore presentation. I- introducing Beth Westfall and Ken Pachetli. Enjoy. All right, let's get started. Um, I'd like to welcome everybody to this edition of the Observer's Notebook on YouTube. Uh, it's the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. My name's Tim Robertson. I'm the host of the Observer's Notebook po- podcast and also the coordinator of the training program. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as the Strolling Astronomer, which is what we'll be talking about today. If you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $18 a year. You can find out more at www.alpo astronomy.org and we are also on the facebook just search for alpo astronomy and the podcast also has a facebook page as well just search for observers notebook today we're talking about the history of the alpo uh the 75 years that it's been in existence and with any organization uh successful organization it has a way to communicate with its membership uh way back in 19. 19- 47, 75 years ago, Walter Haas, on March 1st, uh, 1947, he published the first edition of the Strolling Astronomer. And I've got a picture of that here. (laughs) This is what the very first cover looked like. And we will be talking about that and how it's 
changed over the years. But also what Walter has done uh, in that first issue, he had a plea, a plea to the membership. And I would like to read it to you. There exist amateur astronomers. There exist telescopes they have built. There exists the moon and the planets. This leaflet is an attempt to persuade the party of the first part to use the party of the second part to interest knowledge in the party of the third part. We hope to show heroin some ways in which John Q. Amateur can profitably study our sister worlds, perhaps literally neighbor worlds, in an impending age of space travel, and to give him some instructions on how to do so. It is our hope also to call his attention to the current happenings of special interest, to urge John Q. Amateur to submit to us lunar and planetary observations, which makes, uh, which, which makes and shall take undertake uh, to study them and report our findings through published papers in astronomical magazines. If he wishes to write an article for this leaflet about the vicarious mosquito compared compared to the compatible skunk as a telescope accessory or even some other subject, we shall be glad to receive his manuscript. I don't think we've ever had an article on that. I just might write Actually, I can speak to that. <laughs> oh, okay, well, we'll get to that then. <laughs> we think that we can introduce John Q to some interesting people and can show him a pleasant and fascinating hobby. And now, friends, our fate is in your hands. Whether this embryonic leaflet is to be permitted to develop into a lusty infant depends entirely upon your response. We propose to send you six future monthly mailings for $1. If our plan appears worthy of your support to that degree, we thank you as friends of lunar and planetary science. How about it? Walter Haas. Well, today we're very, very lucky to have uh, two individuals with us that have been instrumental in the publication of the Journal of the Association of Planetary Observers for many, many years. First up, I'd like to introduce a longtime member of the APO, past board member of the APO, past secretary, past recipient of the Peggy House Service Award, Beth Westfall. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. I'm glad to be here to chat with you and Ken. Yeah. Now, what have you been up to lately? Well, most recently, uh, thanks to the efforts of many people, including Ken, uh, to research this, I've been combing through old issues of the journal, and what a treasure trove I have discovered. Oh, I, I hope we can talk about that soon. Yeah. In this podcast. <laughs> All right. And also joining us today, a current ALPL member, current editor of the journal, and also past recipient of the Peggy House Service Award, Ken Pichetli. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. Glad to be here. And how about you? What have you been up to lately? Well, semi-retired uh, as a technical writer, but still very active uh, in the Atlanta, Georgia, amateur astronomy community uh, with uh, two of the local clubs and then um, attending meetings and so forth. And then continuing my, uh, uh, continuing my, uh, work with the ALPO itself and doing the quarterly journal and representing uh, publication section on the ALPO board of directors. So, um, and then looking for part-time work. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, 
Uh, their journalist should be full time, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Okay. So, 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 Beth, how, how, and when did you become aware of the Alpo, and how did you get involved with it? I became aware of Alpo when I started dating John in 1964, 65. Okay. And okay. as we got serious, it became clear to me that. Um, this was an essential part of his life. And a couple months after we were married, uh, he was preparing probably a, a lunar recorder report. And he said, can you help me proofread these tables? And it was a long, detailed table. And I thought for a long time and I said, well, I'm kind of making a lifetime choice here. I can either have him do his thing and I'll do my thing or it's an important part of who he is and I can be part of that. So I made a commitment to proof his tables. Proof his tables. <laughs> and it grew from there. Um, that's, a, that's a sign of love, I think. <laughs> it was a sign of, of love and faith. Um, but uh, it was an essential part of his being and mm -hmm. became Alpo became part of our family life. Yeah. Those who don't know, John was a member and executive board member of the Alpo for many, many years. In fact, if you go back to episode 29 of the podcast, uh, it's an interview I had with John. It's really good. I, I recommend all of you go back and listen to that. We actually talked about the history of amateur astronomy, where he has seen it go, and where he think, thought he would go, it was going to go in the future. Yeah. How did John get involved with astronomy as a hobby? Did he ever discuss that with you? Oh, he, he discussed this, um, uh, the, um, one of the members of the East Bay Astronomical Society um, finally pulled information out of it, it was like pulling nails because John didn't like to talk about himself. But he was well known within the uh, East Bay Astronomical Society for being the youngest member ever. He joined it at the age of seven. Um, and through classes and looking through the telescope at Chabot, um, he built on his knowledge and interest. And like many other letters that I've seen for the anniversary journal and other things, um, he discovered that he was interested in the planets and Elpo was the place to look for help. And so again, about the age of, uh, I think about 12, he wrote one of those famous letters to Walter Haas, who <laughs> replied encouragingly. I think we, we all did that early on. <laughs> I think exactly. Yeah. I mean, got the handwritten letter back from Walter. And yes, yes, we, yes. We need, to certainly. Mention, we need to mention for the listeners out there who don't know that, that John had passed away only a few years ago. That's yes. why we talk about him in the past. And, uh, yeah, he's a great guy. He was a professor of geography at San Francisco State. University? That's correct. Yeah. 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 But um, much of his research and writing was in astronomy, you know, history of astronomy. And he, uh, before he, uh, it, it, yeah, so his degree was in geography. He had worked for the, um, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, people make the uh, aeronautic charts. So he'd been mm -hmm. a cartographer. And 
he always considered, uh, you know, mapping. The earth was one of many objects that he was interested in, and mm -hmm. he was very comfortable moving between mapping the earth, mapping the moon, you know, they were all same kind of technology and, and interest. So, um, there's a book out there. There's a moon, a moon book out there himself. Say again? He has a book, uh, a moon map book. Yes. Yes. Um, that was, um, took a long time in assembling the photographs. And actually, by the time it finally came out, it um, was almost superseded by higher resolution photography. But what everybody found valuable is he uh, discussed the features and history of, you know, segments of the moon as they become available. So it still has value for that. Great. Now, Beth, were you interested in astronomy before this, or was this something not you the, not particularly. married into? Um, I enjoyed, you know, the general, you know, Girl Scouts, and I knew Orion and whatnot. One uh, wow experience was our family um, uh, bought a, a summer place on an island in Lake Erie where it was good dark skies. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget kind of the first time I was there and I was like, oh my God, the Milky Way is really <laughs> milky and clear <laughs> and a thing. <laughs> that impressed me. Um, and I always had an interest in more biological sciences. Okay. Uh, Nature, you know, went capping and caving and uh, okay. canoeing and stuff like that. So, so I had a general interest and in, uh, and in the history of science. So, so there, there was a meeting ground for us. Okay. And Ken, what about you? When and how did you become involved and aware of the Alpo? My earliest recollection was probably when I was nine or ten. Uh, that would be about 1959, 1960. The Russians had launched. Um, Butnik, which I vaguely remember happening, but more importantly, or more obviously to me, was uh, a fourth. I think it was a fourth grade teacher uh, copying um, onto a blackboard with white chalk. Remember those days, uh, a map of the moon, a huge map of the moon from a piece of paper that she was holding in her hands and then drawing it. And it was one of those things that stayed on the board. Oh, for maybe a week or so. And I was just totally mesmerized. I didn't know anything about all that stuff, but I was just totally taken in. I thought that is just so cool. And <laughs> I, I just really liked what we used to call space, which to me at that time was synonymous with astronomy. Mm -hmm. And then I decided I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be a professional astronomer. Uh, and that was my goal through most of high school. And, um, Unfortunately, mathematics and I did not make good friends. Uh, never flunked it, but uh, it just was too difficult for me. So I went into another career. I went into journalism as a career in college. But getting back to the earlier 60s, it was around 1962 that I saw the Alpo mentioned in the back of a book. Uh, I think it was called Sky Observer's Guide or something, but it was in the children's room of the public library. There were only two organizations uh, mentioned, the ALPO and the AAVSO. And uh, I wrote, as John did, I wrote to Walter. And uh, he wrote back somewhere here in 
one of my bookshelves, I have uh, the letter replying to me from Walter. That would be about 1962. I don't know where I got the money because my factory, my father was a factory worker. My mom stayed at home to take care of the house. But I remained in the Alpo initially for about three or four years. Uh, I loved the drawings in the journal by Clark Chapman, uh, although I never could figure out the, the equations that were already in there. So that was when I dropped out. And then I rejoined many years later, about 1990. And I found out that amateurs do what I thought professionals do. <laughs> professionals don't observe. Well, not really. They set up the equipment. They go to bed. In the morning, <laughs> they crunch the numbers. And they teach. And what's worse, they teach math. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm better off. Yeah, I see. I see. Yeah, I got into the Alpo. I I had the Sky Observer's Guide. I I think I went through about three copies of it because I would just destroy the book every time I read it. Um, it had really cool star charts and was a nice little introductory. But I joined, I believe, in 1972. I was a freshman in high school, and I had a, a 2.4 inch refractor, a little 60 millimeter. And I joined and I saw these beautiful drawings by all the amateurs in the magazine. I thought, oh, this is great. I want to do this. And I lived in the San Fernando Valley and the limited magnitude on my street was two. <laughs> so I was pretty much, I was pretty much focused on planets because that's, I could see the moon I could yeah. see a couple of planets and that, and that was it. And I remember uh, I saw that they had a training program. I joined the training program and uh during the next two and a half years, I made over 200 drawings of one crater, Eratosthenes, and yeah. I finally graduated from the pro program years later, a couple of years later, and now I'm running the program. So it's kind of nice to be go full, full circle with that as well. Yeah. Um, so. I, I want to add that um, in the time in the earlier 60s, uh, before satellites uh, and the Ranger probe and all this other stuff, I, uh, I also... Uh, you know, Beth mentioned uh, Lake Erie. I am from Cleveland, Ohio, which I still consider the best location in the nation. But that's yes. where it goes, you yes. know. Yes, agree, agree. Um, and so, you know, the, the limiting magnitude was probably three or four. I don't know. I lived in, uh, in one of the suburbs. I lived in the city, but, you know, east of downtown. And uh, I had my father take me to the Cleveland Museum of Natural History just about every Sunday for almost a year with uh, their planetarium <clears throat> and uh the guy who did it his name was dan snow he was the presenter and this is the days before canned or recorded shows and it was the same show for the you know every month it was the same show and then the next month it was a different show and it didn't bother me, it didn't <laughs> bother me. i just i was just totally taken you know it was great yeah yeah well, Beth, you've been involved with the organization on a uh, professional level, you know, with the with the goings on within the organization since the early right. '60s. So, talk to us about some of the early days in the Apo. Um. Well, for me, back in the um, when I was involved. Uh, it was mostly through uh, proofing John's work. I came across something where he thanked me for typing 
<laughs> typing reports for him when he was lunar recorder. I have no memory of that at all. <laughs> um, that's how you know I became familiar with with what was going on okay. in astronomy just by absorption. Okay. Um, and uh, it went. So it was, it was somewhat limited. And I said, family vacation was always going to the annual conference. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, it seems, it seems silly to say it this way, but between going to the conferences and sitting in on some of the meetings, reading the papers, helping John mm-hmm. proof them, um, we would go pretty regularly to the East Bay Astronomical Society meetings. and. A lot of the times the information was way over my head mm-hmm. um, and I wasn't really making an effort to learn it, but I was startled when the uh, cumulative absorption of information, uh, it's like, oh yeah, I get that. I get that. I understand that. You know, I wonder why it's like this. Um, so it was kind of a painless absorption uh, mm-hmm. process for me. Um, what about interactions but, you might've had with Walter Haas? So my, my actual interactions with Walter were mostly limited to, um, to the annual meetings. Okay. Um, most of the conversations, you know, Walter is on the phone, John here. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, but John would share what was going on, questions, mm-hmm. interactions with Walter. Um, a lot of Walter was, as we all know, was a writer more than a telephone person. Um, so, so actually I did see a lot of the, the written correspondence between Walter and John. Um, yeah, the journal was his baby, wasn't it? It was like his... His, he, he, yeah, yeah. he oversaw everything going on with that. It was very critical. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and um, so as Luna recorded, John was submitting material to, to, to Walter for, the, for it. Um, and uh, Walter, you know, mentored him. Um, he had his mental style sheet, which we learned through conversations and corrections um you know sometimes he would question the analysis sometimes he would question the writing um and this really carried on through when john became editor um and and again most of this was by writing rather than by phone but we Mm -hmm. did use some phone and um you know, it made John a better writer, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, evaluator of, of the material. Um, okay. And 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 Walter had such high standards, um, and and he he was very definite and firm <laughs> about those standards. And uh, so when John, uh, so you know, John took over suddenly. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of that? Okay, t- talk to us about that. Okay, so I was thinking it was in 1984, but it was in spring 85 that Walter was very seriously ill in the hospital 
weren't sure if he was going to survive. And John got a call from Peggy Haas to come down and uh, take over. So John had been associate director since uh, 19, what do I have it? 1977 or so. Um, so he had taken a lot of the, so he handled all the external correspondence and Walter was doing the journal and John was handling all the other functions of the organization. Uh, but then in, you know, I had my dates wrong on when John became editor or associate director. Um, let me see when that was. That was in 1977. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 1977. Uh, so, um, so it was almost 10 years that he'd been doing that job. So, so Peggy called, John went down, worked with her in Walter's office. They would talk to Walter about what was going to be turned over. And uh, so that just got dumped in his lap. Um, and, uh, you know, he was new, he had to go meet the printer. And, mm. you know, anyway, it was something he was totally unaccustomed to, hadn't done. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's when he took over. So that was a, a big workload for him. Yeah, I'm sure. And the early days of the journal, too, it was Everything was typewritten, right? It was all done on a typewriter, and it, it it was. And I um, I was trying to figure out. I know I, I looked at material and, and was eventually done by Offset Printing. I know that because Walter mm -hmm. talked about that, and when that got turned over to John, and. I'm puzzled because the, the the typeface in the journal for quite a while is like typewriter print, but it all seems consistent. So I don't know if Peggy and then John was retyping all of this to give it a, 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 a consistent, consistent typeface. Um, it's I'm, I'm fuzzy on that, and then yeah. I was looking through the journals, studying the typeface and stuff and trying to figure out uh, when it got changed to being done electronically. Um, but again, I, it, as far as I can tell, I think John was, some material he received was, um, was camera ready because mm -hmm. they did request it be camera ready. But again, if that's true, there would have been inconsistency between the different writers and that doesn't exist. Hmm. So um, that must've been what he was doing down wow. in his office all those years. Wow. Um, and, and well, like his early leaflet, he said it was a, a, a monthly. He called weekly. it a leaflet. He called it a leaflet, but Leaf it was a half by 11. Sheet. Yeah. But how right, often, right, how right. often was it published? Um, Initially, I was doing some studies on that. I didn't. Um, initially, it was he was trying for six issues a year. Okay. Um, I think that's what it was when I joined. They tried to do that. Wasn't it monthly initially? Um, that it, takes it, a lot out of you. Yeah. 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 We all know. Um, <laughs> well, if you keep it under 100 pages, Ken, it might be easier. <laughs> <laughs> 
So. Yeah, well, monthly, monthly, the size of those first issues, you know, he had some letters, a few hand drawings, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, all honor to Walter, you know, but that quickly developed into much more. Um, and uh, so even by the time John took over in, in, uh, in 1985, um, I had gone back and looked and Walter, you know, it was listed as 12 issues, but he was kind of getting, you know, mm-hmm. four to six it. issues. They couldn't do it. For, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. yeah, it's it's just too much. Um and uh and so finally, I think in when was it? Um they gradually turned it over to accepting that, you know, four times a year was more doable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even John had some problems keeping up with that schedule. It was yeah. inconsistent. Um, right. But, you know, well, it grew. And, and, and with your help, John brought it into the computer age, right? You, he started. He was more it. the leader. He, he, he was the one. Well, okay. I bought him his first computer. But, uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, and what, what and, well, let's age ourselves. What was that first computer? Okay. His first computer was an Apple II. I bought it at the KQED auction. That's our public radio yeah. TV in uh, San Francisco. And it was what I, what I got from the TV station. John had been talking about this. So it was a computer. And as it came from the station, the memory was an external uh, tape drive, Ooh. an external tape drive. So the cassette, so, t- the cassette tape, or? cassette tape. Oh cassette yes. tape. it was a cassette tape. Lucky it wasn't punch cards. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and and he changed that to. How did he change that out to the first step? But he developed a lot of programs on that. Um, some for astronomy, some for geography uh, projects, and they got uh, published and noticed in in the local um, uh, early Apple users. Oh, really? Conventions and stuff. Um, so he became an Apple developer. Ah, so he got he got the uh, the the, the Apple bug early on. Oh, Apple was still hanging on the tree. <laughs> and um, he didn't own so stock he, in it, did he? Uh, if only, right? <laughs> <laughs> if only. Um, and so he was became an Apple developer, and so he was getting each new machine at a high discount. So he was able to move up. Oh, very cool. Uh, we had the Apple Lisa and. I've forgotten the whole sequence. That's why I had fun looking through those list of machines, you know, that I mentioned in, in Ken's article, article for the uh, journal. Because, um, yeah, we had that, we had that, we had that. And um, so that was what he built on. Um, and, and being a mapping graphics person, um, one thing I, I do know is he was putting the journal together as he was able to uh, – develop good-looking graphics. 
I think when people sent their observations in, if they had like a chart, you know, that they had hand drawn or something like mm-hmm. that, then he would convert it to um, to a good okay. diagram um, for reproduction in the magazine. So I think that was one of his goals was to bring it into a professional, and still for amateurs, but a professional mm-hmm. level magazine um, with the, uh, you know, good quality right. design and print and illustrations, you know, that he could. Um, then he, as he tried to get it accessible to the professional community. Um, uh, it's about the time that he started digitizing it um, that to include abstracts because that was what the professional journals need. So the idea was, you know, we, we do, Elpo does significant research, mm-hmm. um, but when it's in a magazine that's not real well known, it, it takes a lot of digging to yeah, get to that searchable. information. And, um, and so that was one of his goals. Um, oh, good. Good. Now, now, he was editor for until Ken took it over? Was that how that yes. worked? Yes. Okay. And so, Ken, yes. when, when did you come on board as editor? Very appropriately in 2001. Ah, YK. <laughs> right. <laughs> you love that movie like I do. The movie yeah. 2001, it's very appropriate. I had, uh, in the mid-90s, I had written to John and asked if I could help him because the journal at that time was coming out maybe, I don't know, twice a year, it seemed. And I knew that John was overworked. So I said, can I help you out? And he um, he sent me um, a few handwritten letters or whatever, and um, I typed them. And then I emailed those back to John, so that made life a little easier for him somehow, some way. And then um, finally, I don't remember if he approached me or if I approached him and said, I'm available if you want. Somehow, one way or the other, um, you know, I was given the position. And um, as a matter of fact, I remember it was in 2000 because um, here in Atlanta, where I relocated to in 1984, I wound up going into technical writing. Uh, from journalism, I segued through uh, publications, editing, and so forth. And I remember um, at a, a star party that I founded called the Teach State Stargates for all of you listeners. Um, it was almost like a mini Alpo conference because various members and officers were there here in Atlanta, and they approached me to take over the journal. And I got to admit, I was kind of scared because I'd be following in John's shoes and he did a really good job because it was so technical, but I was promised all kinds of support, which I did get. So I said, okay. And I wound up changing the looks of the journal um, to more uh, of a larger page size that's taken a half by 11. Um, I made it available as a PDF file, as well as a hard copy. Um, I didn't mean for it to be so voluminous, but sometimes you get um, a lot more than, you know, some of the papers are just so long. This this issue here that came out in December was 134 pages with the cover. Uh, the issue that we just released 
a few weeks ago, uh, the spring issue was a measly hundred pages. I'm trying to get it down to 86 or so, but uh, like we're talking about type fonts and so forth. I, you know, I use a type font called uh, Souvenir, which is similar to Times Roman. You know, it's all these little t touches that I put my little, uh, you know, my own look at on the journal and it seems to have done well. And uh, I've tried to keep the professionalism and it's, it is all done electronically. And um, I do it here. And I have the, uh, for the last couple of years, I've got the assistance of uh, a gentleman, Sean Dillis, uh, who uh, he's retired and he lives in the Washington DC area. So he's been named actual editor and I've decided to back off a little bit. I still do the production side, the electronic layout and so forth. And mm -hmm. I do the, the final arrangement. So it's a little easier for me, but we do continue to do it quarterly. It comes out uh, at the seasonal change. So um, I don't think Walter, I don't know what Walter would say if he saw a 134-page journal. But to go back to um, Walter's personality, I met him really in the sunset of his years. And I found him, when I went to meet him at some of the conferences, he was the most gentle soul. It was, mm -hmm. he was never, now this is the Walter that I knew, he was never demanding or heavy handed. He just, if he requested something, you knew you should do it because he knew what he was talking about. I would send a copy to him for his review before publishing it. And he would almost inevitably come back with, I suggest that we include something about this. And I would bend over backwards to try and include that sentence or whatever it was he was talking about. He was very easy to work with. And I tried everything I could to make sure that it pleased him because he was the boss. But he never hold it, he never held anything over me. He never was like that. He was just a, a really benevolent, benevolent dictator. I don't know, but he was really great. Very nice guy. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree with you, Ken. Um, during the year, earlier years of working on the journal, um, it was, um, yes, he was always gentle, but very firm, and he knew what he wanted. And we'd go back and forth, and John and I would somehow have some eyeball rolling. Yeah. <laughs> serious, you know, but not with him. And and never critical, always very supportive. Right, but, right. But, but uh, demanding. And, and John John felt that pressure, I think, of living up to not, – not, not, some of it came from Walter's corrections, but some of it was just, um, you know, he had been handed this treasure and to do right by it. Mm -hmm. And meet meet Walter's standards. Um, that that was an overwhelming pressure for him. Yeah. Now, Ken, early on when he first took over, what was the process for putting out an edition of the journal? Well, I um, in those days there was no Facebook or you know, I think I think uh, the big social media program out there was uh, MySpace. I think that Facebook was either nothing or just getting started. MySpace was was it. And it's still around, by the way. Um, but email was it. 
And so I put the word out that um, the various, well, what they used to call section recorders, but now we call them section coordinators, uh, would be responsible to forward to me their various, what are called apparition reports, whether whatever uh, uh, solar system body they were concerned with, whether it was comets or this planet or, or whatever. And I would give a deadline. And my target was to, for instance, with the winter issue, my target was to get the thing in the mail by about the end of the first week of December. Okay. That way it would hopefully be in the hands of uh, the readership if it was a hard copy by the middle of December, which was the seasonal change. And so working backwards, you know, the deadline might be uh, the first part of November or something. And it pretty, pretty much worked like that. And I would get uh, emails of the of, uh, Word files and uh, the graphics would be, whether they were JPEG files or PNG files or vector images, whatever. And I have the software that I'm able to take that. And I have uh, a page layout program that I've been using Oh, God, since the late 90s, and it served me well. And so I, I do the electronic layout uh, in this native program, convert it to a PDF file, and place it online where it can be then downloaded by the membership. In addition to that, uh, we contract with uh, a hard copy printer, and we have an arrangement where I produce another PDF file that's more specific to their needs, and I send them that PDF file by FTP file transfer protocol. They're in charge of printing and distributing the hard copies. And um, I could be rich if I was paid, but <laughs> but you know I do this I do this for the club mm-hmm. because I don't want to let them down. The problem is if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, you guys would be up the creek. That's what we have, Sean. <laughs> yeah. So, Ken, is my, my recollection, actually some notes I found that um, it was at the uh, 1990 meeting. That was one in Ventura, right? Uh, 2000 was in Ventura. Uh, 2000. I'm just a decade off here. Um, I was the and, coordinator for that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. That's that's why I asked you. And, um, and so I have notes that uh, to aid in the transition for that first year, John was going to send, after he reviewed the, the text, mm-hmm. the, the articles, he was going to send that to you, you know, not, not formatted for the... Yeah. He probably journal. did. He probably yeah. did. Yeah. He probably did because, like I said, I, it, it was brought up to me not at an ALPO meeting, but it was sort of a pseudo-ALPO meeting. It was at the Peach State Stargaze in the spring of 2000. And... Um, uh, Julius Benton was there. Walter was there. Harry yeah. Jensen was there. All these, all the regular people were there. And um, I remember being taken aside and they said, Ken, we'd like you to do the journal. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you said yes. Yes, uh, we all are. John, John was very pleased with what you produced. I have to I'm glad to know make that, that real clear. Sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it was a big sigh of relief for the two of us, <laughs> which you appreciate now after your years as editor. I really worried that because he had so much invested in it, 
that, you know, like I did the Peach State Sidegates for 10 years, and then I decided to let it go and pass it on to yeah. uh, the Atlanta Astronomy Club itself to do. Right. And it's never done just the way I would want it done. Exactly. And I don't know how, you know, how John felt, and he never expressed anything. So I, I just did what I did until somebody said, don't do it. Yeah, no, he was very pleased. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like to take a minute here. We have people in the chat on YouTube. Uh, Alberto from Argentina says hi. Hello. He's, he's online. Uh, Michael Morota, um, uh, he was talking about the Sanderson Jepson aviation charts. I don't know that uh, no, 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 not, not those. Um, he worked for um, Coast and Geodetic Survey in okay. Washington, did the uh, aeronautic charts that for the u.s okay and that's that's what he did for his uh before he went back to get his masters okay a gregor shano says i cannot draw thank goodness for electronically assisted imaging <laughs> <laughs> uh david uh Hulahan says greetings from kansas bob lunsford i think many of us are in the same situation he's probably talking about getting old or something i don't know oh, yeah yeah uh, and let's see Will the ALPO convention be online again this year? And I see Bob Lonsford answered that. Uh, yes, July 22nd and 23rd. Details are in the latest journal for that as well. And so online. It'll be online. And on our webpage. And on our webpage. Okay. Right. right. So if you're interested in presenting a paper, drop me an email, and I'll put you on the schedule. We're going to do it just like we've done the past two years. I'd like to uh, uh, add, as far as my uh, work on the journal, for those of for those of the membership that, that get it, that don't look at it, uh, one of the things that I did was, was organize it into three major chunks. Um, the first part of the journal, um, the first part of it we call Inside the Alpo, the first 30 pages or so, because really the object of this journal is to get you to join or contribute. And so the Inside the Alpo pages consists of the section reports or uh, featuring people in the organization that have gone and really uh, contributed a little bit more. They've submitted this, they've done this, whatever. The next third of the journal, uh, I call papers and presentations. That's the, uh, the various apparition reports, uh, images, um, that's the science. The science portion of the yeah. journal is the portion that's called papers and presentations. And then finally, the third part of the journal, the last few pages, uh, I call ALPO resources. And um, that is, this is a directory of who's who, what's what, who to contact, what to contact. It's a list of all the sections, who's in the sections their email and regular mail address uh, as well as a listing of the various publications we call what we call them, monographs and also various other observing section publications and also a listing of all the back issues that are still available as hard copies and then finally there's a uh, membership application in the back with a, uh, a hyperlink included there so if you want to uh, join or renew online or whatever. So it's it's trying to be a little bit of this and that for everybody. Yeah, I'd like uh, to hear that because um, 
when you open the journal and see one of these really scientific reports with this you talked about Ken, all the math <laughs> it, it's it doesn't draw you in and putting that information at the front is a friendlier mm-hmm. way to, to attract people i'm glad to see that yeah and a number of our we have different membership levels in the alpo and the least expensive is no paper journal it's the electronic version and what i like about that is it's a pdf with hot links in it so if you want to email someone you go over their web their their email address you click on it and it opens up an email for you to send them an email we have 13 levels of membership 13 <laughs> levels of membership uh, yeah you know you've got the regular the regular membership but you've also you know depending on how much you want to donate mm-hmm. you've got sustaining member sponsoring member patron member benefactor member uh provider member funder f-u-n-d-e-r and universal membership it all depends but and then there's the just the 18 dollar uh, uh one year uh online you know thing you get four issues and you know yeah so, you can't so not want to pay that's right 18 dollars is is it's it's less than two gallons of gasoline right now so <laughs> at least here in california <laughs> yeah um Anyway, okay, Ken, just going back to the production of the journal, though, like this, you said this most recent edition had 100 pages. What's this the time it takes? 90, to, 96 inside pages plus the outer cover. What, what's the time it takes to put together uh, that edition? Okay, um, I've already started doing some editing on uh, incoming papers. Um for the next journal, I'm kind of just diddling around with it. I'm going to get very heavy into the summer issue that's going to go out about the first of June. Um, I'll really get down and dirty with it in May. But for the time being, I'm trying to get everybody to send stuff to me. And I already have a number of uh, papers, apparition reports, as well as other kinds of papers. So I start working on it as well as doing housework and helping around the house and doing family things. But it it um, it really gets very intense in um, the last couple of weeks of May for getting that done by the end of May. So in a way, I'm always working on it a little bit. Okay. Uh, Jim, let me address a comment on issue size. So when when John inherited the journal, it was typically 40 pages, you know, of the smaller format. And our budget was pretty much based on subscriptions. So Walter really didn't want to go on beyond 40 pages. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm invisible. Oh, <laughs> uh, whatever. This is the size it was back then. Yeah, here it is. There you go. Now you got it. Yeah. yeah. This is the size it was. So 40 pages, and Walter was very reluctant to go over 40 pages because it would add to the printing costs and it would add to the postage costs. Um, uh, yeah. And I found somewhat related to that. I found some comment actually in some letters in 1969 in the fall. Walter uh, complained to John that he was he was having trouble finding quality material for the journal. 
And then in 1990, in January, uh, I have a copy of a, John le a letter John wrote to a member who had submitted a report. And John said, well, it's an excellent report, but I have a policy of not publishing anything that's published elsewhere. And this was something that was going to be published in the Jupiter Handbook. He said, because um, if it's, I want this space to be used by material that's not, you know, so, so I give more people access. Right. Exactly. To have their work published. Yeah. If I find that one of my authors has uh, submitted their paper and it's been accepted somewhere else, and then also, been published in our journal, uh, they probably won't be published in our journal again. Yeah, it's yeah. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Exactly. We're what we call it. I I have decided <clears throat> that the Alpo Journal, the Strolling Astronomer, is a publication of first instance. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That sounds good. Now, now uh, Beth, early on, um, your involvement with the journal, what were some of the struggles and some of the satisfactions you guys had putting the journal together. Best part was getting an issue finally in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people on the podcast and they say during those years, the journal was kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> it, 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 was, it, it, regularity was not there. It was. And, you know, we, we struggled with that, mm -hmm. tried to find different ways to make it work. Um, you know, in actually in part of my research for this, um, in some cases, it wasn't bad as I remember it. In other cases, it's like, oh, yeah, that was a long time. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, yeah, John was aware of it. And um, he, uh, a lot of what he put into it, again, it was kind of to meet Walter's standards. Mm -hmm. Part of it was he was a professor, but, you know, he would check formulas. He would check references. He checked everything. Right. Um, and I say, and then it seems like he was typing a lot in, and I know he was designing diagrams. So um, I, I don't I, do I, that. I don't do that. I'm an well, artist. you know, yeah. You know, you know job, now. If you've done a paper, it's your job to do the diagram. I'll scan it in, or I'll take your electronic file. <clears throat> I'm not a peer reviewer. Uh, but I do have peer reviewers that I depend on. Yes. Right. Right. Well, you know, we were, it was, it was during this transition from um, you know, all hand drawings or photographs to, you know, good quality, again, diagrams right. or, or what, that sort of thing, you know, and, and, you know, John, I guess, got caught in, in managing that transition. So, so that was part of it. Um, and um, yeah, yeah so this, yeah, so so the good times was the uh, you know contacts he made, the interaction with with all the outstanding uh, staff and members mm -hmm. who who submitted this wonderful research. Um, I, I know that gave John a lot of satisfaction. Yeah, and the comments I've heard, I I mean, no, there was never any negative comments about the quality of the journal. I mean, it took a while to get out, but it was right when he got it out. <laughs> right, you know, it just right. might not have been on time most of the time, but it, it right. was a it was a quality manuscript every single yeah. time, and, that, and, and, and that's what we want. 
Yeah. And I would like to say that uh, I've talked with other people and other organizations. You've got the American, you've got the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. You've got the British Astronomical Association. You've yeah. got the American Association of uh, Vis Variable Star Observers, AAVSO. You've got the International Occultation Timing Association, IOTA. Um, I've been told that the Journal of the Alpo is right up there with the BAA and the ASP as far as the quality of it. And I'm, I'm that's, that's, that. I agree. That's, I agree. that's good to hear. And, and that, that was John's goal. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's it's more scientific and you know useful than, than sky yeah. telescope or astronomy magazine too. Right. We're more than sky and telescope. There are eighty pages in here. I didn't plan on a hundred. I mean, <laughs> just is what it is. It, it, yeah. what it, you were saying, Beth. Um, again, going through my research, it's nice. It was good to sit back and, and look at the whole of things. Um, that that the journal from fairly early on had kind of a split personality. It was a journal of record. And it was a, back to Walter's early newsletter, keep up on what's happening. It was uh, also a journal of more immediate happenings. And, um, you know, alerts, fortunately, with the web, now we are able to mm -hmm. deal with the immediate events that got lost during the long delays. Uh, right. But yeah, it was, it was kind of a double thing. And Ken, with your new reorganization of the journal, it kind of addresses those two parts. Thank you. I want to ask you, now this may be something that nobody actually ever thought of. I think I talked about this with Tim once. Probably the biggest thing in our real lifetime, but we now take it for granted, was the actual landing on the moon in July of 69 um, in that area in the Sea of Tranquility and all the and all the various landings after that. Right. And I would have thought that there would have been something in the journal tied to that landing. Not saying, oh, it happened, but maybe something uh, tangential to it, like, okay, they landed at this area and there would have been something about that geological area hmm. in the Alpo journal about where they landed but there was never a mention of it in the journal at that really? time. Yeah. And I, um, uh, I wondered, I, did they feel that, the, that NASA was pulling the rug out from Earthbound <laughs> servers or something? Well, no, but some of that um, element, I think it might've been, I'm guessing at this, it might've been that um, this event has been covered in the news yeah, it mm. kind of going along because because we ran John and I discussed this on some other events that happened, um, and uh, you know it's covered in the news, and we need to give our space in the journal to yeah. um, Alpo. But what you say is is if we could have had something written by an Alpo member about where it was, that would have been good. Yeah, I, I like what Jerry Hubble and the Lunar Section did back in. Mm -hmm. 2019, the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, they had articles every month. I think it was in the Lunar Observer, their magazine, yeah. where they where they highlighted all of the landing sites for all the Apollos and to yeah. go out and observe it, make drawings, make photographs of it. And then the next month we'll look at them. And that was a lot of fun. I did that. That was a lot of fun yeah. to do with them. Good. Um, 
somewhat related to, you know, Apollo landing on the moon um, way back when the first, um, you know, lunar orbiter photos and all of that, there was a lot of hand wringing um, because mm -hmm. there was, you know, well, they've taken pictures of the moon, so what's left for us to do? And that went on through the learn, you know, lunar missions, lunar landings, missions to the other planets. Um, and, and John spent a lot of energy and wrote up a lot of, this is what you can do with a telescope. You don't need anything fancy. And there's a lot of work that's been done. But uh, I think a number of the recorders in the related moon and planetary sections that had been visited or after Hubble, you know, what can an amateur do after Hubble? Well, um, here's what they can do. And I know, I know. Are out there all the time. NASA has their photos that were taken, uh, whether it's Jupiter or the moon or whatever, and they show things as they were. But one of the uh, most dynamic sections or what we call a program, the lunar Alpha section is really a, a conglomeration of programs, the lunar mm -hmm. topographical section, the lunar domes studies, um, the uh, lunar top of, or, uh, transient phenomena. But there's one little program in there. It's called the Lunar Meteoritic Impacts Program. Yeah. And there was one photo taken by a doctor in, I think it was Kansas, back in 1954. Uh, at the moment, that a meteor struck just inside the night area of a first quarter moon. And it went for years before it was finally decided that, yep. Well, here we are today with a webcam mm -hmm. or, or uh, what do they call it? Lucky imaging or whatever you mm -hmm. want to call it. Uh, they're now recording actual impacts on the moon right. um, a lot more frequently. And you're not going to see those on the lunar orbiter photos because these are now. We're the people who find things. Um, one of the statements that I make kind of in jest that's gotten me some dirty looks from the professionals is it's almost like at least as far as so, uh, solar system stuff goes, amateurs make the discoveries and professionals make the announcements. They don't like that. But you remember really? that uh, there was a, uh, a follow-up impact of, of a comet or something that hit Jupiter in such a way that it smeared the clouds tops mm -hmm. and it and it was nicknamed bird strike like if you get hit by a yeah. bird yeah and uh that made the news because nasa announced it but there was a real hue and cry from the amateur community and finally nasa had to come out and say yeah uh it was discovered by as a gentleman i think in new zealand mm -hmm. and they gave him credit and uh nasa announced it and that's the kind of stuff that goes on. Oh, yeah. I know. Comet Shoemaker-Levy, Shoemaker the first observed impact was by Carlos Hernandez and Jeff Beach. Yes. Our, yeah. you know, they, they were the first ones to report it. And they reported it to Brian Marston. And he said, you're the first people to say they yeah. saw anything. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, Ken, you yeah. were talking about the, um, the supposed confirmation of the 1953 yeah. meteor. Yeah. So... John, I, I, I think this was in the journal, but um, after that was announced by NASA, John, it sounded off to him. 
And, you know, he, he knows the moon like the back of his hand and had a lot of lunar photographs. And so he, he went through them and as well as did some computations and whatnot. And um, this effectively disputed that finding and that the crater that Birati was her name, that's part of her name, um, who said she discovered it, um, that the crater had been there through some Lick Observatory photographs from, I don't know, 1907 or some such thing. Yeah. And, uh, and and NASA, I never saw a, uh, a uh, retraction, but, um, mm. and I'm trying to, it wasn't Clark Chapman, it was uh, one of our other members that became a f- professional that John had known in their youth. And it turned out he was the, one of the peer reviewers for that. And mm-hmm. he and John had some conversations and basically he said, yeah, that slipped by me. But uh, John said that was an example, again, what amateurs can do, that that they have that historic knowledge that right. the professionals don't uh, have. Mm-hmm. Right. We actually have our eyes to the eyepiece. That's yes, a, that's the difference. Yes. That's the difference. And yes, do it for the love of doing it, whether it's right. collecting or observing yeah. or whatever. Yeah. We're patient. Yes, well, you have right. to be. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have to be. Yeah, I'd like yes. to take take a minute just to address the people on 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 uh, YouTube that are watching. I want to thank everybody that's logged in and watched. And if you could just take a minute, you see that little thumbs up on the YouTube screen. If you could just punch <laughs> that, it shows that you like what we're doing here. And if you have not already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button and the little bell next to it. Hit that. That's your notification. That way you'll be notified anytime we go live. And we plan on doing a lot more of these live events in the future. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, our conference is coming up in July, and that's going to be streamed live on our YouTube channel as well. So if you want notif- notifications of that type of thing, please hit the thumbs up button and hit the subscribe and the bell. So I appreciate it. still looking it. for a keynote speaker. Oh, yes. So if you know anybody that would like, we had uh, Prenvera uh, a couple years ago. We had uh, Damian Peach last year. So if there's someone you'd like to see or someone would like to volunteer to be the keynote speaker at our conference, please let us know. Definitely. Now, and anybody Ken, can, anybody would uh, who would like to participate and present a paper, you'll have 15 minutes to do it. Uh, really 13 minutes or, or 10 minutes to do it and then five minutes for questions. But you've got to be a member of the Alpo to do a presentation. And for a measly $18, you can't go wrong. But anybody can watch the conference. Right. Right. Anybody can sign up to, to be a part of it. You're not bothered to be a member. But like I said, it's only $18 to be a member of the Alpo. So you know, I definitely recommend that. Ken, yes. current editor of the, news, of the uh, newsletter, of the journal, what are your plans for the future of the journal? I'm trying to stabilize it at a reasonable page length, you know, between 80 and 100 pages. Um, I'm also in the process of gradually trying to see if I can segue uh, to make to take a lesser role to find whether it's a company or another individual who would like to um, take the uh, production side on and still have the journal look pretty much like it does. It's not meant to look like a word document, like a term paper. It's got to look 
not super snazzy, but it's got to look pretty. It's got to be eye catching to a certain point. So I'm I'm just trying to uh, keep the appearance up, but try to find somebody that could take some of the workload off of me. So if any of the viewers or listeners would like to get in touch with me, um, I am at Ken dot Poshedly P O S H E D L Y at alpo-astronomy.org. My surname is a Slovak name, and uh, my mother's mother was Polish. My mother's father was Ukrainian. So I have a connection on all three counts to uh, a little bit of what's going on over there, too. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, and all, the, all of our contact information will be in the notes uh, once this gets published. So this is also going to be a podcast an audio only podcast is going to come out a little later, but right now I want to make this event live so we can get an understanding of where we're at in our 75 years of the Alpo. Beth, do you have anything like to add that we hadn't get to or discuss? Um, well, as I mentioned, I wanted to talk briefly about the incorporation. Okay. Because that's let us get to where we are today. Very good. Uh, so, in brief, there was discussion of incorporating in 1970, 1971, 1987, and it never went anywhere. Without any legal existence, it had no legal existence up until then. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, and so, in nineteen, uh, yeah, so I guess in nineteen eighty-seven, um, I told I, I told John I'd look into it. So people would say, "Look into it." Nothing happened. Anyway, I said I looked into it, and um, I did, and it turned out. In Berkeley, there is a wonderful uh, self-help bookstore, Berkeley 10-Speed Press. And among the books I had was how to do a nonprofit corporation. And it was extremely helpful and provided a lot of the basic structure and boilerplate and issues to think about. And so um, Walter and John and I, put together the papers to incorporate in California. We got that incorporation and nonprofit status by June of 1989. And then we had to get it approved by the uh, feds, which happened during that year. I couldn't find my notes. Um, and uh, we had to put together the financial information, <laughs> which we didn't really have because we just had members, you know, <laughs> we just, and so I worked on estimates and, then later when Matt became treasurer and we had to provide a five-year history, um, he worked really hard on putting together estimates and whatnot. And so I think in 1990 was our first official board meeting as a nonprofit corporation. Um, so that's allowed us to start the endowment fund, mm -hmm. take donations, which we couldn't do before really as donations. Um, and then create a structure where we have a board that can keep things going. Um, 
So I wanted to, I'm not sure people are aware of that history. Yeah, that's very good. We appreciate what you've done with that too. That's, that's very well, good. You know, the, the key was to provide an organization that would be able to keep going because, mm-hmm. you know, that was important to Walter. It was important to John and a lot of other people out there. And Matt's done an amazing job being secretary oh, and treasurer of the organ. I mean, he ju- he released his latest uh, treasury report, and it's yeah, it's like a large corporation's treasury report. It's like it's it's really extensive. Well, it's really definitely extensive. gotten more complicated. <laughs> but, yeah. But, yeah, it's nice to have these wonderful large contributions. Um, they create extra work, but mm-hmm. none of us will complain about that. And he's done a fantastic job on. So pleased to be able to have been working with him all these years. Right. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Ken, or if I'm speaking on a turn, but we're going to make the treasury report available to members too, right? Right. The treasury okay. report will be, or treasurer's report will be available uh, upon request. Uh-huh. And, um, we'll, <clears throat> you know, we're going to post a notice on, uh, in the next journal. Yeah. And, uh, on the uh, webpage, just to simply say, if you want it, ask. Yeah. yeah. No big yeah. deal. No. Yeah. Good. And when we raise dues, you'll see exactly why we're raising dues. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. That's Cost right. of postage, people printing. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What the, if I can ask, what does it cost to to publish the latest edition? Um in general, uh, it uh, the paper copy, paper copy uh right. printing and distribution can run uh two to three thousand dollars for that issue and okay. since there's four issues a year you do the math okay and right now we're at about four and a quarter members for 125 like that. and you know what what's holding us back also is and we need to look into this we'll see how it goes uh the pdf file the online version is full color throughout obviously mm-hmm. but the paper copy is uh, a full color only on the cover and on the inside of the covers. The inside pages are all, there you go. The inside pages are all black and white because it would run us about another two to $3,000 per issue to print everything full color for hard copies. So there's our fan club on the front cover of the current issue. <laughs> Yeah, and that's like, and if you compare this to the uh, first issue of oh, the no, 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 <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, no. We, 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 we've come a long way, baby. I'll just yeah. say that. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. well, there we are. Yeah, so uh, Ken, do you have anything you'd like to add before we close this off for the day? Um, spend money. You know, shoeboxes and fifties work. You know, <laughs> but I, uh, I'm glad to do what I do. Uh, if anybody would like to assist me and take some of the workload off, uh, what is that expression? Many hands make big jobs easier. Something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, it is. It is what it is. And I want to thank um, Elizabeth for her support with John all those years. They laid one hell of a great groundwork for me to follow and build on. Well, you did well. Yes. Thanks. Very and good. Tim, you too. Oh, thanks. You, you know, you, you, the podcasts and the training program have come so far under your, your leadership, Tim. Darn. Okay. You're something else. Plus, well, you have a job. 
That's I, I'm still I'm not retired. <laughs> <That's> right. Right. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Yes, I second that. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. As very we discussed much. yesterday. Yeah. Yes. 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 Well, those of you that like to help support the podcast, uh, we do it through Patreon. So if you're interested, go over to the uh, the uh, the pages for the podcast and it tells you how do you help contribute and give as little as a dollar a month up to $35 a month where you receive producer credits on the podcast. And I really want to thank the two producers we have for this event, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer, for their continued generous support of the, of the podcast and the YouTube channel. So they each get $35 a month, which is quite a contribution to help us out because we make no money on this podcast. I don't run ads. A lot of podcasts have ads. A lot of YouTube channels have ads. We do not have ads. So I want to thank everybody for uh, supporting us that does it in that way. And Ken, you're a Patreon as well. I want to thank you for that. Glad to help. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, anything before we end up? Um, if you want to read a story about the mosquito and the skunk. Yes. In people can go to the old issues and volume 32 issue three to four page 49 to 52 which is july 1987 um it was they were celebrating alpo's 40th birthday uh john wrote a nice little summary of where we've been and where we're going but then david levy interviewed walter haas and his thoughts on the anniversary and it, it's worth reading as a, another look back and look forward and oh, great. david has an anecdote replying to walter's ask about a story he would publish about the mosquito and the skunk so and, your listeners and, will have to go there and knowing david and his experience with shakespeare i'm sure it's very well written and very entertaining yes. to read yes and you can uh by the way the, the entire library of the alpo journals journal is available online um simply put go to our webpage our homepage at alpo-astronomy.org at the upper right corner click on what's called section galleries and then click on section or click on alpo publications and you'll be presented with two screens of uh, volumes of, of issues going all the way back to issue one. You'll have to just navigate yeah. from there. And you can uh, look for volume 32. Uh, no. Uh, yes, volume 32, issue 34, page 49 to 52. Okay. okay. I will find a link for that. And I will put, try to put okay. it in the show notes so people can click on it and go automatically there. And mentioning the website, just real quick, we are also in the process of revamping, modernizing the Alpo website. So it's it's got it. It's in need of a much needed uh, facelift, and we're working on that now. It's a lot of work, and if any web designers are out there that would like to help us out, and actually within the sections of the Alpo, if you would like to help out as well to set up your individual pages, please let us know. We're very interested in that. On that, I'd like to thank both of you for coming on the uh, YouTube podcast today. This has been a pleasure. Uh, maybe we'll do it again in seventy-five more years. <laughs> it'll be fun it will be <laughs> thank you this all was right. fun all Great. right bye bye bye, -bye.